Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box of scraps. That's a spoiler, and you're going to hear more. Community College. And I'm Derek. Also with Bardic Community College. Uh, so today we're getting back on the We Read Words and Books uh, trail. And Which we're is going... surprisingly hard sometimes. You ain't fucking kidding. Uh, so we are covering 2007's somewhat surprising Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. First in the King Killer Chronicle, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So originally, <laughs> the King Killer Chronicle was supposed to be a trilogy, um, and since Patrick Rothfuss takes 15 years to write a book, uh, it has now turned into. Uh, I believe uh, recently he has stated that it can be as many as seven books by the end after the trilogy as many as he fucking wants yeah as many well i mean he'll die before he gets to the fourth one so i'm not particularly concerned if you want to if you want to drive me up a wall it's once we start getting into this this serialization of fantasy stories drives me crazy sometimes well, I mean, that's that's kind of the rub. We talked about this a little bit, and I, I've I coined it as pulp fantasy because that's kind of what it's turned into in the last thirty years. Um, anybody that can't write the story in one is like, I'll just turn this into three books and call it. I'll a trilogy. just turn this into my own universe. And keep knew making that, money until the day I die? Who knew well, Lord of the Rings was successful? Well, Lord of the like Tolkien's uh, publishers knew it, and here we are. And um, J.R. Tolkien was just fucking around. <laughs> yeah, he was... He, well, I mean, the man rewrote the Bible, so I don't really think we can take him less seriously. And don't get me wrong, I, I love Lord of the Rings. I think... I think it is one of the great sins of literature that his publisher decided to split Lord of the Rings into three books. Because um, effectively they more or less invented this entire trend of people stretching their damn book out too long instead of doing it a done in one and having a, you know, a complete story. Yeah. And then, and before we really get deep into it, this one does have some, some fat to it that can easily be trimmed. What is it? 700, 680 pages, 660. 700 in my copy of the book clocks in at. I think the original hardcover was 660 and 20 pages sorry yeah. 22 pages counting that, the epilogue yeah that's about right um this and i think a, this is a fat little soft cover book oh yeah <laughs> well i mean it's not the stand but what is it's still a door stopper <laughs> it, it is you could beat somebody to death with it so i was gonna um, say i just for just for the sake of being a shithead i was like can i actually like what if i walked over here right now and tried to stop my door with this thing would it work yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, it's a big book. It's a big, huge book. It's 600 pages in hardcover. It's massive. Big boy. Um, he's a big old chunker. Yes, he is. It's a chunker. He's well, a I was going to say, it's, and the thing is, though, is that it's not at least, at least my copy is not like, it doesn't have tiny, tiny print, too. 
which is the real kicker is not if the book is big but and it has tiny print is you know like that's even worse but it at least is not like that small to read so it's not too bad yeah and this is kind of an issue with serial fiction um and i will attribute this mostly to robert jordan mostly because he's dead and i'm still just dis- <laughs> I'm, I'm still disappointed and, in him for dying and, and tolkien isn't <laughs> and Publishers, his publisher. like Robert Jordan wanted to set out to write, like, the Iliad in fiction, in fantasy fiction, more so than it already had. What was it, 18 books? They were all 1,200-plus pages. Like, I get if you want to write several Bibles. I get it. Like, I absolutely understand. But there are certain points where, like, some of those books could have been squished. Look Look at how well several Bibles has worked out for religion. Uh, pretty well. They all are several <laughs> Bibles long. So um, don't take this as an affront to fantasy writers in general. It's just a bad industry we, practice. We, yeah, we, we obviously love fantasy. Yeah, like it, it's just a very bad industry practice and it sort of I I don't like it because it, it is almost an inevitable lead to, oh man, I could sell this to HBO for a miniseries after, you know, what, 2009? So it's just become a significantly larger problem in these days than and, I suppose it was. And, you was. know, I'm, I'm not against writers making money. Don't get me wrong. No, make uh, all the money you want. don't get paid enough. Don't write that way. It just gets kind of gross. And at least – so – and we I'm talking about this specifically because – so this is my first time reading this book. And I, I have read recommended it two or three times, I think. I was actually recommended this book by Jordan before we started the channel and I picked it up like straight up bought the soft cover and it'd been kind of like sitting around and I'd read a couple chapters of it to start, but I just didn't quite get hooked. And then when we started thinking about the channel, I was like, well, okay, we pick that one back up and I'll read through the whole thing. Um, Which was, and I do want to have an aside here. This was nine weeks ago. (laughs) That we decided to read this one. Um, yeah. No. Well, I mean, nine weeks ago since I think the first conversation about, oh, hey, yeah, let's just go ahead and do Name of the Wind since we've already got it. Yeah, and uh, I'll cop to that being being bad on my part. But this hey, took it took 15, it took me three weeks, me fifteen hours to read. It took me three weeks to read the Golden Compass. It's still on my desk. Like I understand, absolutely get it. Um, and I say this for a book that when I sat down and read it, the first. 200 pages captivated me absolutely um so let's start with what this book is actually about and this is this is of course going to have a spoiler tag uh, well well, let's let's do let's let's kind of swap these things and let's do the setting first because that'll give you an idea so the world is timorant there are a very large continent it's called the four corners of civilization it's just divided into a couple of different major nations and cultures stuff like that there's uh, kind of not Christianity TM going on. There's there's, there's like one Jesus. I maybe I don't kind of. Um, he's basically Jesus. Um, and then alongside, uh, parallel to this world is the Feywild, which is sort of where all of the supernatural creatures exist that can move between the realms when the moon is full. That's fine, whatever, it's cool. The Feywild, once you get to it in the second book, is actually cool shit. Um, Magic exists, 
it obeys a very specific set of rules that people have more or less discovered accidentally. I was going to say, it has, it reminds me a lot of alchemy and Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, like, there are people sort of bumble-fucked into it, and they're like, yeah. oh man, we gotta write this shit down. Yeah, it has, like, as many rules, uh, and as much, like, weirdness associated with it, um, maybe not quite to the level of, like, grotesqueness that alchemy gets in Full Metal Alchemist, but... Uh, well, we also don't know specifically. I'm sure there have been some kind of odd, you know, tragedies performed in the name of magic, but... So, the, uh, this isn't like Harry Potter. You can have magical adeptness, and you can never cast a spell anymore. So, like, they're, it's, they, they are really about, like, scientific and professional training. Like, it is something that they, you know, like, you study magic for the sole purpose that one day you may be able to do something semi-magical. But most of the time, you're just going to be some schmuck who can't, which is the majority of the population. So... And this is the part where I say is that the setting is kind of in that vague pre-gunpowder, but approaching Renaissance level of science understanding. Yeah, I, I think like fantasy Renaissance is a very good way of describing the setting. It's they've got cities, they have kind of working water, um, although they have basins and stuff. So I guess it might not be everywhere. Um, you still have, like, you know, gypsies and bards and stuff, whom our, our main character is uh, descended from. Um, it's just, it's an interesting setting. It, it plays itself well into not necessarily a D&D &D setting, because it's it's primarily, outside of the Fae, it's primarily human. Like, there aren't orcs, there aren't trolls, there aren't goblins, there aren't half-elves. There's just humans. It is decidedly low fantasy. Well, I mean... Low magic. I don't know if I would say low fantasy. Low. It's weird, like because like the Fae, like once you get into the second book, and this is something that he hasn't read before, so he doesn't quite get the turn. Um, there are a lot of creatures in the Fae, and you run into some crazy ass shit in the second book. So I guess that's something that we should probably you know do a circle back on at the very least. Uh, so the main character. Um, is a at the beginning of the book a young man named uh, Koth. Uh, it's spelled K V O T H E. It's supposed to be sort of Yiddish. Um, it's they say in the they say he mentions it's like it's pronounced like Quoth. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be kind of like Quoth, but there's a literary sense and a and a, a spoken word sense to it too. So it's kind of. It's it's weird, and I've never heard Patrick Rothfuss go, this is how you say it, because I haven't really looked for it. I'm sure, though, he talks a lot. Like, when the dude does, like, speaking tours, he's actually pretty well in-depth on, like, how he pronounces things. Um, so there is a storyteller telling you about a wizard called Tumberland the Great, who is captured by these evil, once-humans called the Chandrian, who are cool as fuck for being trophy as they are. Um... And he's trapped in a tower, and he's like, oh shit, I gotta get out of here. And he falls out of the tower. But he knows the name of the wind, which is how essentially you're supposed to sort of channel magic, is you have to figure out what secret language that particular thing uses. Like, the wind has a name. And he calls it, and it sets him down later. And this is sort of a recurring theme in the book, because like some people are like, those people are full of shit. Because it's not like, 
Final Fantasy or D&D where it's like, oh, hey, by the way, I can cast magic. And everybody's like, magic isn't real because obviously it is a point in everybody's life and daily life. Whereas this one, it's kind of like if you were in a third world country when people landed on the moon and somebody told you you landed on the moon, you'd call them fucking crazy. Right? Like, it's just something that most people may not have ever really had a thing with. Um, so that's the opening. Uh, we fast forward to uh, some kind of mountains. Noir? Navarre? Um, we fast forward to um, the Waystone Inn. Yeah, which, which is in some town. town. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's weird. Um, and it's managed by a man named Coat and a young man who is assistant named Fast. Um, you learn that Coat is actually Quoth, or Quoth, um, who is a storied sword fighter, magician, and musician. Um, it is rumored that he has killed a king, um, so across the land he is known as a king killer, and for whatever reason, whatever he did caused this giant civilized war, this whole like current modern war that the entire civilized world is getting down on. Um, it is revealed that Bast is Fey. Uh, he is a prince, but he is also both assistant and he studies under him. Um, and they sort of get you into, like, he's assuming this identity to, like, kind of hide from the world, I guess. Yeah, it seems that he's just grown tired of being this heroic or mythical figure and decides he wants to retire and be a, be a kindly innkeeper. But this all changes when a chronicler... Who is always way. referred to as the Chronicler. He never he goes by his name. name. So I guarantee, we, they barely mentioned it, but by book three, I guarantee you that guy's going to be a fucking thing. Um, and the Chronicler recognizes who he is and decides he wants to put down his story because this is a perfect opportunity. And after a lot of argument and banter, Koth agrees, but says it's going to take him three days to do it. To which do it is, proper. which is essentially one day per book is the way they sort of lay it out. So right in the beginning, he's like, "I'm gonna sell you three books," and you go, "You motherfucker! How dare you do this to me? I and can't I, believe you've done this! Yeah, I can't believe you've done this!" And it took me a while to realize that that was the trick. It was probably about halfway through where I was like, "This motherfucker is going to have this entire book. Like this entire book is just going to be his first day of telling the story." Um, so that's kind of where it starts, and you learn that uh, Quoth is from the Edamaru, which or Edamaru, I'm sure he has said it at some point, I believe it is Ra, um, who are, I guess the only real way to describe them is they're just fucking gypsies, right? Like, they're just sort of... Yeah, they, they seem distinctly modeled after Romani. Yeah, they're just Romani bards and performers, and they go around and they're heralded by the royalty, and they host them, and they come do shows. And they're, like, almost like, I guess, the fantasy equivalent of a Broadway troupe, right? Like, they come out and they do all sorts of crazy shit, and they have, like, magic shows and I mean, stuff like they're that. They're like a traveling circus, practically. I mean, I don't think quite circus, but I think maybe close. Like, it, it's definitely interesting. Short of having actual pack animals, it feels like a traveling circus. Yeah, you 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 very you get that sort of distinct thing. Um, so he finds that um, the troop picks up a scholar and an arcanist named Aventhi or Aventhi. 
who travel, he is essentially, Quoth is like, yo, I want to learn that shit. And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, and he teaches them sort of science and um, what is referred to in this world as sympathy, which is a discipline that creates links from one physical object to allow the manipulation of another. So it's sort of... It might as well be... It's it's Sympathy is kind of used interchangeably with magic, but it feels in the sense like it's more of a, like a, a particular way of going about doing magic. Yeah, sympathy is closer to the feeling out of magic, where the science of magic is a little different. Um, but it's pretty dis well described that both of them are kind of required to accomplish the same thing. Um, uh, he also finds that uh, Abanthi knows the name of the wind. And he goes, shit, yeah, I want to know that. And then you learn that uh, Quote's father, some famous bard named Arladin, has been composing a ballad about uh, an ancient hero, Lanre, or is it Lanner or Lanre? I, I, I've just, in my head, it was Lanra. Like, yeah, Lanra sounds fine. Thought of it. Sounds good. Um, so you find out that uh, crazy shit goes down. The Shandrian, who are widely known as some crazy-ass boogeyman uh, from the original story, show up and are like, uh, you talking shit that we don't want people talking, so you're all dead. And then they kill everybody. Um, and one of them is about 90% of the way into murdering our young folk uh, when they all sort of fuck off because some mysterious enemy is showing up. And they don't really reveal that one in this book, and it's very, very vaguely referenced in the next one. Uh, and then we get to turn into, I don't know, is this Oliver Twist now? And then it becomes Oliver Twist, and then it becomes Harry Potter, and then it gets like kind of discworldy towards the end and it's back to harry potter yeah so um th i think that's about as far non-spoilery as we can get into um there is a love interest he becomes a musician as is his bardic nature um he gets into not hogwarts to learn science and sort of sympathy and stuff like that um and so without knowing the book or the characters um i would tell you to read it like, good serial fiction, and fantasy especially, is kind of hard to grab these days, um, especially in the world of uh, every author is, it costs them 50 cents to put out an ebook on Amazon, and while there might be some very, very solid gems in there, a lot of it is really bad self-inserted fanfic. I would say that if you're a fantasy fan who is okay with, um, you know... A kind of trope, tropey story that's told well. I think you'll have a good time. Especially, yeah, it's... I think this is like a this is like a good like young adult book. I think. Oh, it's absolutely, it's an adult book. I I would say like early teens, mid teens would get a get an yeah, absolute. Like I said, it's thick as fuck, but it is probably a good book for like. She's a talking bowl of oatmeal thing. Um, but. You know, if, like, your kid's a fan of Lord of the Rings, and you should always show them Lord of the Rings first. Uh, but what about I the animated Lord of the Rings movie? Of course. But what about, you know, what about Rock and Roll? Uh, <laughs> of course. 
Don't forget the, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards too. While you're at it, the Wizards was you know those you know Ralph actually did all of those, right? Uh, he didn't do the first two Lord of the Rings. Uh, he was one of the animators on the team. He was the he was the main company for the third book, yeah. but he, not for the first two books. It's crazy that that thing happened. Anyway, that's a that's a crazy rabbit hole. To that's get a down. hell of a tangent. We'll anyway. we'll have to do rock and roll one day. That's a wild ass movie with not David Bowie. With Iggy Pop, you mean, is the bad guy? Yes, with not David Bowie, also Iggy yeah. Pop. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the the setting is very believable. I like the characters a lot, and I like that the book sort of treats its own mythos realistically. Like, there aren't gods walking among people, so everybody is, like, magic, uh, you know, there's sort of this uh, suspension of, there's sort of this apprehension of disbelief for the most part. Um, and to I me, like. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say. To me, it reminds me of if Discworld wasn't a satire and was considerably lower magic. That kind of reminds me of how a lot of the characters act because yeah, they're they're relatively like there's a lot of weight and um a lot of substance given to even like very minor characters and lots of funny moments and kind of this acknowledgement that. They're, you know, and kind of this, like, the characters are aware that they're, you know, that living in a magical world, there are things that are insane or, you know, outside of the realms of human possibility that they just kind of have to accept and figure out. Especially when you get into the Fast Times at Ridgemont High portion of the book. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of kind of, like, episodic parts to it uh especially after like i said probably about the 40 percent mark yeah there's Um, like there are so there's one major narrative line that you're gonna follow and then it ends up turning into oh what four five really small stories that sort of build over the book it's kind of hard to describe i think that so, and this is where, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in spoilers. What I really appreciate about the book, too, is that it has this really interesting relationship to this story within a story kind of concept. Because it is one of the, you know, one of few, um, at least modern fantasy, no, you know, that's not fair. Uh, or not accurate, I think. But it's, it is it is a story within a story in that it starts off right away with you understanding that you were being told a story and you have a narrator in-universe who's telling it to you. And they stop at multiple points to kind of comment on this. And there's times where they, sometimes there is a tangent or a story within the story. And I think when you're thinking from that perspective, a lot of the choices here get very interesting but they also sort of like raise questions but i'll get into that later um and from that i think this is i i I really appreciate that thematic framing of this kind of reverence of stories of analyzing stories and 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 the funny thing is is that the book opens with you being told a story and it's only sort of secondarily has any relation to what's going on, or at least as thus far as you understand. So you're sitting here and you're like, all right, so I heard a story. And then I've got this guy in a bar telling me a story about his life, which turn into all of these sort of little stories about those things. Like 
the layers of storytelling are actually really good. Like, it doesn't ever seem too contrived for the most part. And most of them are... Like, there's only one or two parts in the book where I'm just like, oh, skip this shit. Like, a lot of his bard stuff I don't really care about because it's kind of just like dick measuring contests with everybody and it just bothers me. Yeah, and I have some issues regarding this <clears throat> kind of structure and setup that mostly derives from it being a serialized fiction, but yeah. we'll get so into that later. The the short take here is, um, if you want some modern fantasy, well, if you want some classical fantasy written in a modern tone, um, name it's pretty good. Like, Patrick Rothfuss definitely knows how to take very tired themes and tropes and kind of craft them in a very interesting manner. Yeah, there's... I can't like I can't say with any sincerity that I did not enjoy my read through of it, and I, I did really enjoy a lot of the literary tropes on display here. A lot of good individual bits of writing, some stuff that gives me that kind of like, that kind of self-amused chuckle, that I find myself a lot when reading Pratchett or Gaiman. But yeah, it's got a couple of like, surprising gags. And then it's got a couple where you're like, all right, I've seen this done like five other ways, and this was not the best way to have done it. Well, like, um, there's there's lots of good little there's lots of good little bits. Uh, I don't want to just quote directly from the book, but one was like, ah, uh, yes, on this side of the on this side of the town, there's uh, beggars, thieves, and whores, and on the other side of the town, there's solicitors, politicians, and courtesans, and that couldn't that that made me smile. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of language that he uses uh, kind of to turn one thing against the other to show you that, like, yeah, these are all pretty much the same thing. And there's a little bit of fun commentary on, like I said, this kind of metafiction of how rumors and myths are created. What I like it. I like it. There's one point in the book where Bass, where the story stops and Bass goes, that's not at all how that happened. And then Quoth goes, you weren't even there. And I was like, that is cool as fuck. And there's another part where he says something at the end of one chapter. And then it's, the next chapter is interlude. And he's like, the the narrator's just kind of waiting for them to respond, and they don't respond. He's like, "So that you you guys are just going to accept this? Like that's clearly impossible." It has some very interesting. You can't even really call it like fourth wall breaking because it's in its own fiction. So it it's got a couple of moments of disbelief that are really interesting when they they turn back to the modern telling. Like it's it's very, it's interesting, um, but. Short story version. Read it if you like fiction. It's, I mean, it, it's seven, it's six hundred pages in hardcover, seven hundred ish in soft. You're probably not going to regret reading it. It is a very fun book. You're probably going to get frustrated by a couple of parts, or you may not even notice. And this is where we will put fucking spoilers.
All right, so one, Quoth is a fucking Mary Sue if I've ever fucking seen one. Like, okay, holy so shit. I didn't want to say that. Holy but... shit, Batman. So, like... He's a Mary Sue know. and Batman! His parents are dead! <laughs> His parents are fucking dead. So here's here's the thing. Here's well, the thing. this is where my parents died, Raphael. Cow a bummer! So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, you, you can't do this to me. Um, okay, so I don't like throwing around the term Mary Sue because no, no, this is me. yeah, this is it. You you don't don't feel bad. This is it. <laughs> no, well, and specifically because it's kind of a nasty term. It you know it implies that there is a wish fulfillment thing going on with the character, and to me, it's so, sort of like is more indicative of. I will say that I don't mean it with as much venom as most people will normally quote a character being a Mary Sue. I, I am saying that this is the bare bones, like, if you were to look at the definition and you were to read quote, you go, yeah, these things fit. Now, literary barbs aside, um, it he ends up being a surprisingly well-written character. Like, that's the real turn of this. Like, everybody in here that you're like, oh, man, this is a fucking trope. Yeah, at the end, you go... Oh, I liked them. They were good. So, so it's like, there's, the thing about the term Mary Sue is I also just feel like it's used inappropriately because people will throw it around just on characters they don't like. And especially female characters who are written with any kind of like, you know, who are written to have any kind of power. And I think that's kind of, I think that's why, I think, you should use that term very sparingly. Or not, just use know. it fucking accurately. Wolverine is a Mary yeah. Sue. Get the fuck over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of a fair example. Or at least he's like a... That's a character who's been warped so much, too, by things outside of the writer's control, like editors wanting to throw him in everything. But going to this book. So this actually bothered me more until I got to the end. Um, but yeah, Quoth is kind of kind of Mary Sue ish in that he has he's he's a prodigy. He's a he is literally a like able to do all this crazy shit from a relatively young age. He picks up everything really fast. He's smart. He's like he can lie to almost anybody. He can cheat his way through and not get caught he can you know he can do well i mean so there there is there are points where that is true and there are other points where you go oh man he's gonna get out of this one and he doesn't so there and that there's there's a fair balancing of like sort of writer's convenience for a character and then the writer showing you that like no i mean he just got fucking lucky like i'm gonna i'm gonna pop him in the kneecaps for this one and you go all right a lot of the other characters kind of call him out of it. I love the scene where he's talking with one of the Academy Masters about how he made a lamp. And he's like, yeah, you did this right, you know. This is like, and... But it seems like you're trying to prove to me that you're better than everybody by improving on it when all I asked you to do was to make it this fucking way. You know, Yeah, like, the, uh, the sympathy professor is probably one of my favorite characters that's not Elodin, because Elodin is wild. Um... um Eladin is the magic teacher. He's the name master. The name master. So uh, the sympathy teacher is something that he sort of gets into because he's got to make some money. And he's like, oh, hey, if Artificer. I make like, 
artificer. Yeah, if I make these quasi magical lamps and sell them, I may I can you know not live in a fucking attic. Pay my Ill tuition. illegally. So uh, he he does absolutely get called out on his bullshit multiple times in the story, and people are just like, "You didn't have to do that." And he goes, "Well, no, I had to do this, this, this." And they're like, "Or you could have fucking asked." Yeah, like, there's lots of points where the characters call him out on being kind of too clever for his own good, or too, like, or too interested in proving himself, when he really has all the time in the world. And this is my other kind of thing that hurts this book to me, is that, okay, so, I am 200 pages in this book. I'm right about to where the point where his parents die. And it's a really, really well-written scene where he kind of, like, you know, his whole, like, childhood up to getting separated from his parents is great. You know, he meets a mentor. It's kind of this Obi-Wan relationship, but it's not too, like, it's not too typical. It's not too um, bitter. It's It's not too sweet. It's not too saccharine. Like, you actually get an idea that these are happy people. He's a happy kid. He's pretty well, you know, like managed. And hopefully, it doesn't. Hopefully, there doesn't turn out to be any of the the usual. Ah, uh, yes, I was prophesized to become the the leader of these people or whatever, or you know, this kind of bullshit. I which I could go on for our hours about that, but it seems like he's a relatively at least happy. You know, has a happy childhood. He. He, you can kind of see where he gets a lot of his guile and craftiness because he really takes to this kind of theater troupe that he lives in. And so you get why he, you can get why he can do at least a lot of that. And I really appreciated his kind of relationship in this um, with his family and with uh, Ab Abinthi. And um the whole time he's telling it, and I'm kind of thinking that, okay, so after the end of this, he's probably going to get a major kind of time skip, which doesn't happen. But um, up until that point, I was really liking it. There's a really great scene, too, where it cuts back after he finishes talking about his parents, and the Chronicler and Bast are like, whoa, dude, that's pretty heavy. You want to, like, talk about it? And he's like, no, no, I'm good. And yeah, he, he like, just said the rest of it off, and then later on, he has a little breakdown over it. And yeah, I'm, like, after they take a break, he goes into the back room to pick, like, oh, was he making potatoes you know, or something? And he just, like, loses it. And you're like, okay, that was not what I was expecting. And that's that's good. It's nice to see stuff like that. And that's sort of the thing where, if, to quote Lindsay Ellis in her video on Game of Thrones, you know, this is like, uh, people really get into, like, some things like Game of Thrones, because it's like, this is like, this is hot fantasy that fucks. This isn't like you're um this is the mom's like your, fantasy there's penis in your vagina here with, with like you know brotherly love and goodwill towards men and stuff like that this is like you know and i'm like no this is why this is one of the things about fantasy that i love is these kind of like is these emotional moments that you can you know that you can take advantage of and have lots of high melodrama and well you know, like and it's, it's very elements. relatable like how many times have you like mentioned something that may have been very very sad and it didn't really cause an effect and then at some point you actually sat down and thought about it and you're like oh wow that was really rough like everybody has had these moments in their lives and it's it's very 
it's a very human moment in you know, a book that never... is fantasy Superman for the most part. Well, and there's never a moment in, like, say, Star Wars where Luke Skywalker, like, breaks down and cries over his I bet adoptive it was... parents. Died. I bet it was after he banged Leia. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but, uh, you know, but and there is a very short, like, little, like, you know, entirely, you know, couple of little scenes where you can you can think that he's thinking about it but it's refreshing to see like hey this is like a real person he's not going to just like aha after my parents died i'd never cried again or something yeah like, no it's like it's refreshing um and there's a lot of weight given to these kind of emotional moments um and I was very interested to see how this kind of back and forth between the present storytelling and the story being told were going to interplay. And there's a few good points where, like, characters will stop to tell a story within a story. And that's honestly some of those. Yeah, because you'll be talk. Somebody in the story being told will be like, have I got a thing to tell you? And they, they recant some tale. And you're like, this is a weird layering that you don't normally get in fiction uh, in general, because, like, it's almost it's almost anthology style fantasy and fantasy, which is kind of weird. Um, and, but as soon as it gets to the big city, tar beans or whatever, uh, then it becomes fucking it? Oliver twist. Oh yeah. It's all, it's absolutely Oliver twist. Uh, what the fuck was that? And I'm like, Sonny? and I'm like, it's like a hundred pages of stuff you've heard before of, ah, oh, yes, I have to live in a, I have to live in a crawl space of, on a couple of roofs just to get by. I have to steal. I have to, I have to pick locks. I have to, uh, you know, make do on such little money. I have to fight off other kids. I have to fight off now, like, I, you know, get beaten up by the police. I will say the one part that I actually really, really like about this part of the book is when he goes to give that little bit of money back to the, um, he actually makes more money than he needs. And he actually goes back. And there was this woman in the beginning that sort of looked out for him a little bit and gave him a place to sleep. And helped him oh, get cleaned up. I and think that it's was, a man. It might be a man. Maybe. Yeah. And it was a really cool moment because, like, it, there wasn't a lot of, like, flourish to that. There wasn't a lot of, like, flash and, and fame. It was just like, hey, I owe you, like, a literal life debt. And we gotta, I, I want us to. Because it's like, it's like this, this, old, this, like, guy who kind of runs this orphanage or poorhouse kind of thing. And he takes care of kids who don't have anybody including like some kids who are physically disabled or have you know mental disabilities like that's another powerful little scene because it it's a, a side of fantasy that you don't really think about yeah and like what what happens really to the cool. mentally disturbed in in a fantasy world like it, it it's a very it's a really powerful scene and that one always i always remember that one very um very strongly um, so we get through Oliver Twist. He sort of learns about the city. He learns about like kind of the church, and then he finds out that like if he wants to know anything, so he learns that um, the hero Lanrek or uh, Lanrek, whom uh, you have at least heard of vaguely before, uh, ends up being. Uh, the leader of the Chandrian named Lord Haliax. And he's like, well, fuck those guys. I still got beef. So uh, he goes... It's weird because it's like he decides 
so and this is this is like I said the weirdness of it is I'm like okay so he kind of has it in his head from like 12 that he wants to go to the university because this is what his mentor has said if you want to get good at magic this is where you go and he kind of gets pushed into that and he gets to thinking about that so that's like becomes his life goal is to get to the university but then he also wants to figure out who the why the fuck his parents were why are my parents dead yeah who are these Chandrian guys and how can I go fuck them up? And like, um, and this is the part of the book where I am both, um, fond of and not fond of. So he decides to get into university. Um, and he falls sort of head over heels with this young musician named Denna. Um, and there are some points where you read these interactions and you go, wow, that fucking hurts. Like, that hurts a lot, a lot. <laughs> like, if you've ever been in a relationship, or at least you thought you were in a relationship where only one of you knew you were in a relationship, um, you never really get, in this book specifically, you learn more later, um, you never really understand, like, what their dynamic is. Like, Quoth seems to think he knows, but it is he is constantly reprimanded by reality going, that is not what is going on. It's like, I think the romance is uh, totally fine in this book, because uh, it makes sense. Um, I don't know how I really feel about the character of Dina yet, although she is at least an active force for the most part. I'm kind of bummed that she was totally like, conked out for the last chunk of the story I uh, she has she has a very big chunk of the next book so um but uh the main thing is him going to this university which again he's really young he's like 15 when most kids are like 17 or 18 when they start here also so not already, hogwarts yeah and it's a college he's going to a college and because this is supposedly so, the place that has the most accumulated knowledge on any subject known to man in the known world so he's he like into, well like, i'm gonna learn shit yeah it kind of reminds me of ponder stibbins from disc world except in that he was kind of like you know those books are played more for humor generally speaking is also satire. the librarian is more interesting a character than most fantasy tropes <laughs> the the orangutan, yeah. Uh, well, he was a man, but they decided he got turned into an orangutan, and then he declined uh, being turned back into a man. He liked it too much. Um, but um, within uh, within uh, this university, you know, he very quickly makes friends and enemies. Just you know, and I don't want to be like I don't want to be a shithead about it because I feel like. You know, is it just me being jaded because I've read this story before? You oh, know, you mean like, what? You mean the fifteen fights he gets into with Draco Malfoy? Yeah, with oh, wait till his father hears about this. Although he's at least like their in their intimacy is on a much deeper level. It gets like well, not not maybe not more than that specific than that specific example, but they like they they fucking hate each other and it gets ridiculous. Yeah, their their enmity um, is real. They do not like each other oh um specifically it's ambrose is this other kid who goes to the university and he's like some rich kid um who also has uh his eyes on denna and who also totally fucks uh 
our um our homeboy out over of, several out times out of, yeah especially like like hardcore fucks him over um and again because quoth is so clever and so like much of a prodigy he can ace pretty much every class he does he quickly gets the eyes of several of the masters of the university like like you know, getting them, you know, and sometimes he totally strikes out, like, he totally strikes out with the librarian after he gets tricked, and he totally strikes out with the name master after he decides to walk off of a building. Yeah, that was pretty good. So, Elodin is the master of naming, who is sort of like, he's the only guy at the college who has maybe figured out magic, and he's a little flighty, and you learn for, uh, at several points, that the reason he tends to not take pupils on, and the reason he tends to avoid taking on apprentices is that you learn that magic has very powerful negative effects as well. Like, it is very draining, both mentally and physically. So a lot of people don't react to its use very well. And it is sort of, I don't know if they do that in this book or the other book, but it is sort of implied that there are a lot of... Um, mental facilities that can be damaged by using magic or being magically sensitive. Um, it, it's more intimated than it is outright said, but th there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth to Elodin as a character. Although when he's like, oh, hey, yeah, Quoth, if you really want to, you know, figure this shit out, you just walk off of the building. And then Quoth does, and he, what, does he like break his arm or some shit? Yeah, it's like he, <laughs> he's like, aha, this is a test. I'm going to walk off this balcony. <laughs> And then Aladdin's like, you're a fucking idiot. He's like, wow, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And he's like, I can't, I can't believe you've done this, you absolute fool. And there's, there's lots of, like, there's, there's good moments like that where if he was more Mary Sue-ish, he would have just, like, done it and, you know, like, he would be... Come ahead, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he would... There's enough, like, roadblocks in his way that it's not so cut and dry. Um, but then you get, like... So, the end of the book, like, the last good 200 pages, is he gets... He basically finds out that the Chandrian are in a town to the north of him. So uh, well, like, so him and, and Denna... And he thinks that people are trying to kill him. Yeah, Denna describes um, an event that she had heard about, and it mentions blue fire. And the hallmark of the Chandrian show, the Chandrian showing of Chandrian, uh, are that uh, fires turn blue when they are around. This is apparently a, a mark of some notoriety. Um, so they go out up there and they find this weird farmer who's like, oh yeah, man, we had blue fire. Well, so they go to this like farmhouse that was destroyed. And it is. And said, oh yes, it was a there was a massacre here during a wedding. And then they find from this guy's neighbor, who is like this country bumpkin, which is one of my favorite little parts of the book, because yeah. they do this great accent back and forth at each other. Um, oh, you mean when they, they unintentionally mishear each other like four times? Yeah. Um, but they do this, like, they talk to this country bumpkin and they reveal it's like, oh, that guy built his house on a burial ground. Because he's a fucking idiot, and they found something there, and he was going to give it to his kids as a wedding present. So whatever he found there must have been absurd. Uh, well, so, so it's revealed that what he found was a pot that predates a lot of current civilization. 
that has paintings of all of the seven Chandrian. And the Sandrian said, fuck that, we're killing everybody, and murdered a whole wedding. Um, but then, it turns out that in this self-same forest to the north, there's a fucking dragon. Okay, it's not... So, it is closer to Arthurian European dragons than an actual D&D dragon. They refer to it as a Dracus. And it is not as giant menacing a thing as you imagine. Now, it is still dangerous as fuck. So, like, they, they kind of put their own spin on it. Because it like eats trees. Yeah. And it and, like, and it, you like, don't fire. And don't don't misunderstand me when I say this. The entire threat is they look at this thing and they go, It's gonna eat that whole fucking town. And they're probably right. And specifically this dragon has been getting high off of some some crazy farmer's uh not opium. Yes, not opium TM. Um but like that's probably my that's probably my big thing is I'm like, okay, so we spent the last half of the book of him fighting a dragon, not half, but the last chunk of it. And a hundred pages. It was a lot. It's like it's like it just feels so inconsequential to his whole life. You know what I mean? Like you could cut it out, and he wouldn't really have almost any change in what he was doing before and after. Although the descriptions and, of the dragon getting high as fuck were cool. It's a funny idea, don't get me wrong. It's a good, like, it's a good idea. It's just not great. I mean, it, it's, like you said, it's inconsequential. So, it um... Feels, it feels like a shaggy dog story. Yeah, it, it very much is. So, he, uh, they find that out, and they're like, well, we didn't find out really any information on the Chandrian. It was kind of a waste, but at least we did some kind of good. Uh, he gets back to the university. Uh, Ambrose is fucking with him, and apparently gets so mad that he breaks, quotes, loot. And quotes like, I'm fucking tired of this motherfucker, and accidentally calls the name of the wind and he breaks Ambrose's arm. Yeah. And everybody's and like, What gets, the fuck, dude? And you then, don't do that he gets shit. Expelled, and then except not really. He just well, gets, and like, he gets, kind of reprimanded. He gets lashed, which is a big difference from reprimanding. Well, he gets like fake expelled, and then they're like, nah, just kidding. Uh, we're gonna reverse that. You're back in, buddy. And you're well, the funny thing was like, they were like, oh yeah, by the way, on top of getting expelled, we're gonna tie you to a post and lash the fuck out of you. And he goes, what? And they're like, yeah, sorry, buddy. And then they give him the lashes, and then he goes through this entire expulsion rules, process. Rules. And then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we're not actually expelling you, but good try. And they're like, what? Yeah, don't make me tap the sign. Yeah, he goes, every Tuesday, don't make me do this. Um, so he gets put under, uh, under Master, under Elodin at that point. So this is sort of the come down of the book. So you hit a very high point of him making some kind of stride towards figuring something out. Um, at this point, he already has a mortal enemy. The half of the college professors aren't really sure that they like him. He's been banned from the archives for life. And, Although he can, by the end of it, sneak back in. Yeah, which I didn't. I did not like that. I, I think having the repercussion and then having to be like, "Well, this is just illegal." Like I didn't like that. Um, uh, so things are turning up. So it comes back to the end uh, in present day, and they've gained a couple of hanger-ons, uh, and a mercenary uh, ends up being. Uh, they find out that he's possessed by, uh, I think, uh, a skin dancer or something of that effect. Uh, yeah, is a flesh mender or something weird it's like and a shadow demon from D D. 
Yeah, kind of. It just sort of exists in this dude. And uh, they're all in, in mortal danger, and Quoth is like, oh shit, I gotta cast magic, because apparently he can do that. And then it doesn't work. And uh, the local Brad blacksmith's apprentice, Aaron, who's a character you see a couple of times, ends up like hitting him with an iron rod, and it kills him. So you automatically go, hmm, fairy stuff. What is it? Fairy shit. Way to go, Aaron, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Aaron fucking knocked that dude out of the park. Um, and this is where the end of the book actually takes a really cool turn. So everybody settles down. Bast breaks into the Chronicler's room, and he goes, By the way, you're here because I led you here. And if you do anything besides show how heroic Koth is so we can get back on the fucking road and do something good, I'm gonna eat you. And you're like, what the fuck, yeah, Bast? I kill you. And I'm like, we did. Do we need this? <laughs> it's good because it, it. I like it because it frames the next part of the story very, very well. Because Bast knows something that we don't. So he's like, he's like, we got to get the band back together. So you better do your fucking part, or I'm going to eat your heart. And you're like, holy yeah, it just shit! Gets, it, it just gets so like, it comes out of left field. It feels like. Well, it does, and then as you sort of digest it you realize that it didn't um so the epilogue is quoth is basically a restatement of the very first chapter yeah so it sort of gives you a little bit of time in his shoes um, and he's just sort of he's just waiting to pass like he doesn't want to do anything he just heavy wants as a to great die. river smooth stone it was like the patient cut flower sound of a man who was waiting to die and that's a hell of a line right there. Yeah, no, the, there, are, there are a couple of, like, prose, poem-esque lines in this book that you're like, all right, that's fucking there's a lot of There's a lot of great lines, I will say. I, I really should listen to the audiobook of this, because I'm sure it's great. Uh, I think it's done by a UK group, but I don't remember exactly. But, um, so, so you get Bass telling Chronicle, like, yo... We're doing this because this man is literally not doing anything else for the rest of his life, and I'm not willing to put up with that shit. And then it goes into the epilogue, and it kind of confirms I need my that. Fix. Yeah, I need like, my adventure and fix. It uh, it, it really confirms it is that Quoth is just sort of given up, like he's just done. He just doesn't want to do it anymore. And I think, looking back on the story, I think that is part of why he agreed to tell the story because he's like, hey, you know, after I get done telling all of this, I can just be done with. It. You know, I, I just, I don't have yeah. any responsibilities. It's interesting, and I I do want to read the rest of this series, hopefully by the time it's done, done. Um, it's just that, and again, to get my specific criticisms of this book, I think that it is, it has a lot of stuff that is kind of fluffy and just isn't interesting. I really feel like you could cut down a lot of the Oliver Twist shit. You could, cut you could lose like university stuff. Two f- you could lose the last. You could lose probably like two hundred pages. pages, two hundred and two hundred to three hundred pages, and there's almost nothing of consequence left out of the book. Um, I think that the so let me let me talk about the title for a sec. So, a good title is paramount for a story because it you know it can it can do a lot to help you tie your theme together or set up you know specific expectations from the audience so i love the name of this book it is a great name because it's it's obviously a fantasy it's kind of a fantasy sounding name but it's not too like out there that you wouldn't pick it up and be like oh this is obviously a fantasy book 
Um, but it's a it's a great title. And up until again, a good portion of the book, I actually really liked the title specifically because I was like, oh, the name of the wind, it's like this magic that eludes him. And it seems to elude even like not even the best like like Abenthi can do it and maybe Elodin, but it seems like this kind of like very powerful bit of magic that not even they have full control yeah, of. Yeah, because supposedly the wind is the most difficult part of magic to sort of harness because by wind's nature it is very ethereal and it does not like it, it does its and own it, sort of thing. It kind of set up expectations for me to be like, okay the first chunk of this book is his childhood. The second chunk is like him trying to figure out what happened to his folks. And then the third chunk is maybe him getting his revenge or finally harnessing the power. And yeah, he kind of harnesses the power at the end there, but it's kind of random. It feels so petty after he just spent the this other section fighting a monster. Well, so and... here, here's the thing that I like about that. And, and there are points of it I don't. But here's the one that I actually really do like. The idea that you expect the entire book. He's like, he's going to do this. He's going to be the one to figure it out. And the only reason he gets there is out of pure blinded rage accident is actually kind of satisfying because it reaffirms literally everything they've told you the entire book. Like, this is fucking hard. You are not going to be able to do it because most people barely can do it accidentally. So, I just feel like it's... It's like it like there's a great scene early in the book where he tries to use the power. He tries to use the name of the wind. He tries to harness this energy and he fails and almost dies. And it's yeah, this, because it's dangerous. It's, like that's what they that's the part where they try to beat it into you. Like magic is not something you can just sort of casually do. But, but they don't really build on it. <laughs> that well like, no that's on. they they hit you with that part and then they give you a couple of other things with Eladin, and other than you and, get a little more in book end, two he just pulls it out of his ass like he's goku and i'm like that's lame i mean it's a little anticlimactic but like i i can understand it to a point there are certain parts of it that i really like and other parts where i'm like you know that was a, that was just like that's i mean the anticlimacticness is kind of my whole problem with the yeah. book and that because well also because you can tell specifically they're like oh hey by the way next in book two on the next episode of dragon ball z we're gonna get to the actually good shit that's the thing is i'm like and that's not to say there's not good stuff in this there is a lot of good moments and good character and great like little detail it's just like this could be better this could be like you know you could have a something that feels more like a complete story as opposed to, well, if you like that, tune into the next book six years later that, you know, might give us more information, you know, like it's just, and, I, and you know, the, here's the other thing that I think everybody needs to understand. Um, so this book came out in 2007. It is the year of our Lord 2020. We don't have the third book. Yeah. I'm a little bitter about it. I just want everybody to be aware of that. And I understand the Robert that Jordan, the Robert Jordan fears. You know. I I understand that it is hard to write a book. I am. I, I respect understand it. that it's hard to write a doorstopper. I get it, but it's been fucking one week. Third, shut up. It has been thirteen years. Kids have gone through school, like just like you, you played, know, like like for I all get... for all the faults we can attribute to Mrs. Rowling. She got the books out. 
you know, like she didn't fuck around. Yeah, and that that's the thing that really gets me is like, so when did um when did the second book come out? Uh, 11, 2011. 2011, and then you've had the slow regard of silent things, which is the side story in 2014. So, even if we do that, it's been five to six years since anything has happened. And if the a slow regard of silent things is like 300 pages? I don't even think it's 300 pages. It's 159. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a taste, or a, it's like a uh, well, the second, the third book's taken a while, so here's something to tide you over. Yeah, and and I actually really like it, um, a lot. Like I, I like the side book a lot of it because it, it takes one of the characters, and I'm, I'm very interested in it. Sort of gives you a very interesting thing, um, but it's just like at that point you're like, all right, dude, like you've been on 15 D and D podcasts for the last five years. I know that's a that's a commitment. We're gonna fucking we got to go, my dude. I mean, that's a dream. That's a dream. Like, yeah, like, I get it. You are living your best life. But yeah, I, we got it. It's time to fucking... Let's do it. Yeah, just give me a... Give me something, man. Like, like you man. said literally after the trilogy, some more books planned. Let's finish the fucking trilogy and see where we stand. <laughs> it's like... Again, it's this idea of like, no, I'm gonna have my own fantasy universe with blackjack and hookers, and it's gonna be like, I'm gonna, you know, make twenty books of this shit. It's gonna be great. And I'm like, can we do one story first? It's like, you know, uh, again, like, and again, Harry Potter first book is its own self-contained story, and they get increasingly more serialized as they go. But at least the first one is a complete work. You know what I mean? It feels complete. Like there's a an actual climax with shit that matters. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, actually, which, and again, that you know that book being split up uh, in the three. I don't think that the books necessarily end at great points if you like when you combine it all together, but it ends, you know, it, it has natural points where the story sort of stops. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think, I think there could have been, I, th I feel like I have this sense of wanting that, like, it kind of li lifts me with a bad taste in my mouth. At the end of the day, it does something in modern written, fantasy fiction that I, I don't appreciate a lot, which is it, it actually tells a very good story. And on top of that, it, it approaches this with a very interesting way of presenting that, which is a story within a story within a story well, within again, a story within like, a story within a story. I, I can't say that there's not people also doing this trick of having, you know, of having a... No, the Princess a Bride did it. Having, We've already done this. Uh, a framing device. A framing device is what the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Of having framing devices. Um, I'm not no. saying it's not the only person that's done it. It's just, it's a refreshing way to do it. Well, especially when you do it well, I guess, is the big difference. Like, The Princess Bride had that little bit of magic because it was done slightly differently than you expected from the book to the movie, and it added that really interesting sort of sidestep to it. Um, so for the, the book yeah, to do it, it, it was fun. Especially when I they do the cuts. Like, when he comes back and he goes, Really? Y'all are just going to take that at face value? And I'm like, yeah? And he's like, you fucking idiots. Yeah, that was great. I loved that bit. Like, it was like, 
what you guys aren't going to say, dragons aren't real. <laughs> it's like a lot of the interludes are great like that, and I really loved every time it would cut back to have the characters react. Um, yeah, when when there, there's just a couple of lines of modern time going, oh, well, that was was a thing. And like you're you're gonna like the characters. Like even Ambrose, for as much of a Draco Malfoy as he is, is is well written to the point where like you're not gonna like him. Like you're gonna like how much you hate the guy because he really is just kind of a dickhead. Uh, and a lot of the a lot of the side characters are are given enough personality that they they. Do oh yeah, like every every one of his like bunkmates, and then the couple of girls that sort of consequentially fall for him and end up helping him. I, I feel real bad for that girl he saved and was like, and was clearly interested, but was also like, he just doesn't like even notice. Yeah. Uh, and like, he does that a couple of times. And He's... you know, it, it is kind of refreshing that this book is at least less grossly like is not, it's, I'm not going to say that this is some kind of feminist text because it it definitely is not, but it is at least kind of aware of these kind of tropes baked into fantasy universes and and historic and since they're all derived from history from historical. Yeah, like I love I love Witcher, but at least this isn't a media about fucking anything that moves. Yeah, the the female characters do have agency, and even though there's not really a lot of them, they the book doesn't like the book doesn't treat like a kind of like the book isn't really misogynistic which is kind of refreshing i mean i think it has a couple of moments but i think they're written intentionally it feels like it feels like the when like like for example ambrose is introduced like harassing a girl and it's like and the book frames it as bad and that's i think that's good cuz normally like you tend to overlook like ah yes we have these fine heroes in a tavern and they're gonna pinch the the tavern winch's ass and you know the bard's gonna go sleep with a bunch of women and it's all just gonna you know it doesn't it's not gonna matter by tomorrow morning because we're gonna leave you know there's this very casual indifference towards women in fantasy and i like that this book you know is at least not that bad about it or at least i i think it is it Ah, now I'm getting really like You're uh, charged up with, over here, my man. But I like that it I like that it kind of at least has an awareness of that and doesn't and doesn't present like casual mis misogyny as good. Well, I mean it also while it doesn't do that, it also doesn't really broach the opposite either. Like it doesn't reaffirm anything other than, you know, hey, women are people too. It doesn't really have very it doesn't have female characters in very powerful situations, I will say. Or there are there are a couple of scenes of where you go, Quoth definitely wouldn't have been able to do any of the shit if it hadn't been for her. Like that is a very common theme in the next book as well. Um so I mean that's that's pretty much it. For all of my issues with writing schedules and some of the tropes being just not greatly written. Overall, like I love the book. It's it's a very good book. It's a great series. And I'm I'm glad Derek finally got around to reading it, even though it took him nineteen years. I swear, whatever the next book is, it's not gonna take this long. Uh Wise Man's Fear, you may as well go ahead and start it. It's like seven hundred pages. Gross. Um but what I meant was is whatever we do next with the podcast. 
Yeah. I on guess. a final note, the first thing that I thought of when <laughs> he's like, "Oh shit, I've got to get to this town. I've got to go find the fastest horse in town," was I was like, "Sturgill Simpson." Uh... Ah! <laughs> what a wild ride that was. All right, boys, that has been uh, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, this has been Jordan and Derek giving you the what for, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Next time. On Dragon Ball V.